All right, open up your Bibles to <coughs> Matthew chapter 20. If you're following along in the outline, this is the same one we started last time. We had not quite finished it yet. Uh, but we are one piece of paper, two piece of papers into it. We're on the back side of the second piece of paper. If you're following the outline, if you're not following the outline, then just turn to Matthew chapter 20, and we'll reread verses 1 through 16 in just a moment as we get into this. So toward the latter end of the text, which originally the text that we were looking at here was Matthew 19, 16, all the way through 2016. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, and Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. But toward the latter end of Matthew, specifically chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, we see Peter ask, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And yes, our dear brother is speaking to the Lord Jesus with these words. Jesus saw the dangerous attitude of Peter's heart here. What shall we get? What can we give that we haven't already given? And what shall we re- receive in return? And Jesus uh, gives them the parable here, the parable of the vineyard, to give them warning for this kind of attitude, for, the, for the, the mindset or the heart of receiving rather than giving. He promised them blessings in this life and the life to come, but he also reminded them that he would soon die at Jerusalem, verses 31 through 34. This isn't the first time that he has told them this, but as you'll see in this lesson, and, and if we have time, the next lesson that's already written, he's going to get more and more and more direct. And each time they kind of respond like, we've never heard this before. But he's been telling them all along. If their Lord had to suffer to enter into his glory, if our Lord had to suffer to enter into his glory and make possible what it is we gained in that sacrifice, then it is realistic that we will have to suffer some loss in this life as well. And specifically, through all these chapters on discipleship, he said it would be our life in this world that we'd have to give up. Not our breathing life, our sort, our, our idea of biological living, but the living in the world. It has to be sacrificed. The life that we once had in that old man nature that we talked about this morning, it would have to perish for us to truly follow him. So let's reread Matthew 20, just the first 16 verses as we consider the parable of the vineyard or the parable of the hired laborers, however it is you want to refer to it. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning uh, to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. And again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, this would be about noon and 3 p.m., and did likewise. And at about the eleventh hour, about 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? Verse 7, they say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. 
And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way, which is a type of rebuking. <clears throat> I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. It is not lawful for me to, or is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil? This, the, these two words is actually one phrase, eye evil. It is a, is a depiction of covetousness. So he's saying, is your eye covetous? Or are you in yourself covetous? Because I am good. Verse 16, so the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few cho- chosen. It's easy for us, I think, if, if we just not read the rest of this outline, to just say, well, I would not be jealous if I were called first and given a penny over the one who was called last and only had to work that one hour of the day. So let me reverse it a little bit. What kind of abbreviated paradise do you think the male factor that hung on the cross went to compared to the paradise we may go to after a full life of, let's say, living faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, surely if, if he was only saved in the waning hours of his life, he's not going to be in the same paradise that we will be in, right? I've already suffered more in Tulsa than he did as a Christian on the cross. There must be some other paradise for me. You can see where the covetousness comes in. It's the same paradise. He said that he would be with me that day, and he has described this paradise as an everlasting paradise. So he's still there with him even now. So we've got to wrap our minds around the fact that it's not about the receiver, it's about the giver. It's okay for him to give what we see in verse 4 whatsoever is right in his eyes, as the owner, as the householder, and we are simply receiving. So there's some things to lay out. Again, the purpose of this study is to put everything in a chronological order, in a sense. So we're going to just really go through some hermeneutics. So we're going to start with the setting. Why did this come up? The rich ruler had refused to give up his possessions and follow Christ. If we're just looking at Matthew's account today, it would be from Matthew 19.16 to Matthew 20.16. understand there are two parallels to it, but let's just stay in Matthew for right now. The rich ruler refused to give up his possessions and follow Christ. The Lord warned his disciples about the dangers of riches, and Peter boasted that he and his friends had left all to follow him. And he boldly asked, What shall we have therefore? His question revealed the wrong motive. As he's, uh, was he serving Christ for what he could get instead of out of loyalty and love? At the root of the heathen practice of Christmas, the same principle exists. Have your children been good for the month of December just to receive? Or in 2024, Christmas begins around June now. So were your kids good for seven months so that they could receive? I doubt it. So beloved, we have to ask, what is our motivation for serving the Lord? I do believe there are rewards. I believe the scriptures support that and depict that, not fully maybe to to our satisfaction, but it does describe a type of rewards. On the other side, is that why we're doing this? I'll give you a little behind baseball. What comes next is James and John saying, we desire the right seats of the Lord Jesus. That happens chronologically right after this. 
So Jesus is addressing what was in Peter's heart because it revealed what was in the heart of the disciples. Think about this setting for a minute. We've got one, two, three, four, five. We've got six men, so we've got half of what the disciples would have been. And let's say uh, any one of them. I pick on Charlie and Isaac a lot. So let's say Robert goes to the Lord and says, we've given up everything. What shall we get in return? Then Charlie and Isaac, I want to leave you guys out. Well, they say, well, Robert's bringing up a pretty good point. We've given up a lot of stuff. And he did say that we could, have, we could ask for anything in his name. So maybe we ought to go and ask to sit at his right hand in the kingdom of heaven, which is what the sons of thunder do following this event. Now, how are Jerry and David and I going to react to what's going on here? These three have essentially assumed we earn much, and two of them have asked for much. What a, a bunch of louses. Where do they come from? Have they sacrificed more than we have? Have we not served as much as these two have? They talk a lot, but we quietly have served faithfully, have we not? But you can see the ripple effect of the wrong attitude amongst the Lord's people. We're not to be just pure on the outside of the cup, are we? It's all the way through to what's inside the cup. Christ warned them that some who were first in the eyes of men would be last when it came to the final reckoning, and some whom the disciples might think last would instead be first. So secondly, the meaning. Who was this for? Who was this lesson for? The main spiritual truth Christ brings out is that God has a right to deal with His servants as He will, according as He sees fit, but measured out by the motives of their service. Not by their service, not by what they've done, but the motives, the motivation behind it. Where was their heart as they did it? It's the reason that before we go into the Lord's Supper, we talk about the heart. Don't come to this table blind of what it is you're bringing to the table with you. What is it that you should repent of and leave behind forever before coming to this table? This is a picture. It's typology. It is something the church is ordained to do, but it, in its typology, it resembles the church open and naked and unashamed of Him before one another. This is exactly what the Lord's addressing. Through what Peter did, through how Jesus handled it, James and John come forward. And suddenly all is revealed. It was just a few lessons ago where he talked about all being what was spoken in the dark and spoken alone, being brought to the, uh, to the forefront, being made open and aware before everyone. The parable is not about salvation, but service. The penny does not stand for salvation or eternal life because salvation is not by good works. None of them from the early morning all the way to the afternoon were working for salvation in this parable. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we all know this. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are his tapestry, we are his work. Could you imagine a painter painting a, a, a magnificent piece and then stepping back and expecting that magnificent piece to earn its own existence? Or for that piece to do anything to earn the pleasure 
or the delight of its creator. All that can do is exist. All it can do is what it was made to do. Titus chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Those last three words are very important. He saved us. Amen. And he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which we shed on us, or which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christ is not talking about rewards for service here either. God will reward his own differently according to their service. And here's some proofs of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Now he that planteth and he that watereth. And this is Paul talking to the church at Corinth about himself and Apollos. There were some there that were torn asunder as far as who their spiritual father should be. Who was the most important man to stand before us and preach, you might say. And he said, one plants, one waters. And here he gets to the heart of it. He that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. But Christ Jesus used the planter and the waterer for the benefit and the purposes of his church. In this instance, in Corinth. John chapter 4, verse 36. He that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. That both, he and that's, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. You know what that event follows? What, what that verse follows there in John 4? The woman at the well. Who is involved in that event? Jesus and the woman at the well. The disciples were sent into the city to get food. They weren't there for any of that. They were shocked it even happened when they came back. And Jesus talks to them about the purpose of the work they've been called to. If the penny stands for, reward, for rewards, then God is not fair, for every worker got the same reward. So we've got to continue to dig then. What are we talking about? If you connect Matthew chapter 20, verse 10, with Peter's remarks in Matthew 19, verse 27, we start to see the lesson. Matthew chapter 20, verse 10, we read, But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. Matthew 19, verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto them, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Isn't this what Peter was doing? We have left all, he said. What will we get? He was thinking to himself, Surely we will get more. Surely there is an inheritance that could be measured between me and my brother. You know what this sounds like? Cain and Abel goes back quite a ways, doesn't it? I think we read from Genesis 3 this morning. In the very next chapter, we see Cain and Abel disputing over the, over the acceptability or the acceptance of their offerings. It, who was the one required to make the decision over whether, what offering was acceptable? Was it Cain? Was it Abel? Was it God? See, if early man had figured out way back then that the final word was God's, Abel would not have perished the way that he did. But Cain was torn up inside. His countenance had fallen. Sin was at the door. God said, it's not Abel's fault. Your offering is not acceptable unto me. And the next conversation was, where is your brother? Your, his blood cries out to me. 
And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Well, that would have been a good question to ask in the beginning. Peter, are you your brother's keeper? Is John and James offering and reward something that you are in charge of keeping track of? Maybe Matthew, who's a great bookkeeper. Maybe Judas, who keeps the bag. Maybe they're more qualified to decide who the rewards should go to for the work that's done. Or maybe it's God's say. Maybe the call to the faithful is to serve to the uttermost. To be unashamed to the uttermost. And to not worry about what your uttermost is compared to his uttermost. We are caught up even now in 2024 with who is the greatest patriarch in Baptist heritage. Who cares? Are you serving faithfully? Then nobody can ask more of you. Are you serving God? Are you worshiping Him in spirit and in truth? Are you teaching and leading and feeding your family? As for you and your house, are you following the Lord? Then no one can ask more of you. No one can touch you, in fact. Christ teaches him that God has a right to do what he pleases with his servants and that to have a wrong motive or an evil eye, verse 15, is sinful. To be covetous. It seems so ridiculous when you think about it. To be covetous over what God as the householder in this parable deems uh, is right according to verse 4. To be covetous over that. It's absurd. It wasn't ours to lay claim to. Note also that the 6 a.m. workers demanded a contract. They wanted to know what they would get more. The last workers were just idle. They had nothing better to do. They were not hired. They were not put to use by anyone. The third thing to consider here is the living. Christ has summoned us to labor for Him. It's too bad that there are Christians standing around idle all the day when there is so much work to be done. There are so many in Tulsa. I'm not going to say that have never heard the gospel. We probably have some. Maybe many. But there are so many in Tulsa that think they have the Lord. They think, like Toby, that they have some great faith. I don't know if it was intentional, but the way that you kept saying that this morning, that the way he laid claim to his faith being what got him through, it made it sound like it was just by his ability to have faith, he got himself through. The Lord not in the equation at all. And that's what we're up that that's the spiritual warfare that we're involved in, beloved. Amen. We're not putting it would be easier to put uh, something fake into something fake, like the Christ of this world back into the Christmas of this world. Mm-hmm. But what we're looking to do is to reveal the Creator who's been around since before this world. Amen. To see that He is honored and glorified, to see that He is worshipped, to see that He is lifted high and above, Amen. that others be healed. That's a hard world because we have volumes and volumes and volumes of fairy tales about how everything out there came into existence and none want to acknowledge the truth of this book. None want to read the first three chapters that really explain it all. God breathed life into the universe and He made everything with a purpose. God made man in His own image and the first man with the express purpose 
of guarding the temple and staying away from the tree that would corrupt. In the third chapter, we see he didn't teach well. He did not keep his house. Beloved, Satan's plans are no more complicated now than they were then. To get man to not keep his house. Make man comfortable with letting the world into his home. Make it easy for man to rely upon television, radio, whatever it might be to lead his home so that he doesn't. You know, Adam and Job, when you think about it, there's a lot to compare and contrast between the two of them. Job kept his home even when his home was literally coming apart. Even when his wife said, curse God and die. Let's be done with this misery. If that's all the devil wants, if that's all that God wants, just curse God and die. Let it be done. And Job says, Jobism, not straight text here, but Job essentially says, am I to only receive good and not evil? Am I to only benefit from how wonderful God is but not suffer under the depravity that has been rolled down to me from our father Adam? What then is overcome by Christ Jesus if that is not present also? How important is Christ if there is no suffering? If there is no sadness? If we live the rest of our days and never see another soul die, will we think of what lies on the other side? Will we actually contemplate what the kingdom of heaven would be like? Death is ever present for a reason. That man would actually contemplate that which is bigger than himself. It's too bad that there's so much work to do and yet Christians remain idle even in the 11th hour. This parable reminds us that we should serve Christ out of love and loyalty and not just for rewards. It is not sinful to earn rewards and God in His grace will give rewards to faithful servants, but the rewarder should fill our hearts, not the reward. You know, in Revelation, when it talks about the crowns that, uh, I'm going to use the terms loosely, but the crowns that we have earned as martyrs, what do they do with those crowns? They're laid back at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. For me to live, for me to die, as we talked last time in Philippians, everything Paul referenced was If I have to live, it's for Christ. If I die, it's for Christ. To die is gain. I'm I'm done. My journey's over. My labor has ended. But if I am to live, it must be for Christ Jesus. Beloved, if you are born again, that is the vow that you also have upon you. That is the silver cup of God's will that is in your bag. You must now live for Christ. Go and sin no more. Outside those doors is not your dream come true, whatever your heart wants you to do. And Disney's going to have a lot out there for this afternoon, so I won't go too much further. But that's not why we're here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Paul says, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Gamaliel said something pretty similar. Remember when the disciples, after the Lord had passed, 
uh, I'd been called, or I had ascended at this point. They're, they're back in the temples. And the scribes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're all up in arms. What are you doing back in the temples? You were told not to preach in the temples. You're back in the temples. And testifying before them, Gamaliel says, if this is of man, it'll amount to nothing. But if it's of God, it cannot be stopped. It's one of them examples of a blind squirrel finding a nut every once in a while. And that's proof of what Paul's talking about here, that every work shall be revealed by fire. It shall be tested. It shall go through the fires of temptation to walk away, to quit, to hide. If any man's work uh, uh, if any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. John Franklin Carter in his book, A Layman's Harmony of the Gospels, put it this way. He who serves without, uh, without thought of compensation or in complete confidence in the Lord to reward him fairly will be surprised at the magnificence of his reward. It isn't what drove him. It isn't what guided him all along the way. It was serving his Lord. I personally have not done the subject of rewards much justice in my ministry. The main reason is that I would not want to encourage church members to serve the Lord for rewards. It's kind of silly if that's my motivation to dwell on it a great deal, but it is here. Scripture is clear that there will be rewards, but I could never hope to earn my salvation. And I could never hope to earn a reward that's comparable to the salvation that's been given to me as a free gift of grace. Is it not enough for me to labor and love for my master, knowing that I've already more than I could ever have deserved? We must watch our motives for Christian service. The right work done with the wrong motive dishonors God. That's the lesson that Jesus is teaching these disciples. It is a solemn thing to realize that Christians whom we may have read and admired will be last at the final reckoning at the judgment seat of Christ because their motives were wrong. I mentioned one this morning. I'm sure I'll get letters for staining the name of J.R. Graves. He's just a man. If you read those first two chapters, you hear his pain and his hurt. He went to battle. And I'm not lifting him up as a hero. The wrong motives are revealed in our words. If I were to preach Christmas the way my heart, my fleshly heart wants to preach Christmas, even those of you who have never done it may never want to come back. Oh, I hate it. Oh, I hate it. Because I was lied to for 20 years. And I fell hook, line, and sinker right into it. You know how bad it is to be deceived and then celebrate that deception unknowingly? I'm thankful that Paul writes uh, to, to that situation and saying that because he was deceived, because he didn't know of the things that he was doing being against the will of God, that it won't be counted against him in such a way. But it still feels awful. But I don't dare approach the Lord's pulpit and preach that that way. I can't preach a sermon. I shouldn't preach a sermon. Even if it's truth that I vehemently am in favor of. I can't preach it without love, without breaking the sermon I preached this morning. What good is faith and hope without charity? We should preach cords that cannot be broken. 
We should labor in the fields with cords that cannot be broken. But they can break down a cord that has enough Joe in it. As they peel it apart. Well, look at this weak link. And it's me. It's my opinions, my hurt, my bruises. Christ's bruises are way more powerful. And mine don't even hold a candle to what he went through for me. We cannot judge other people's motives, but we can judge our own hearts. That has been an overarching theme of the last few lessons that we've seen in the Lord's ministry. And we're going to see it one more time next time as we look at John and James as they ask for those right seats. When we look at these two events combined, I get my original title, Little Children, the Rich Young Ruler, and now this parable. We see that to come to Jesus requires humility and poverty. It requires shamelessness and brokenness. It requires, for the great physician to do a work, it requires that we reveal that we're sick. Could you imagine? And all I have to go on is this day and age. So think it, think, I mean, you've, you've experienced it. You go to the doctor's office. You fill out all the paperwork again, telling them who you are. Same paperwork you filled out last time. Provide them the insurance cards, the driver's license, and then you still sit and wait for 45 minutes for an appointment that you had. And then you go back there, and you do the same song and dance with the nurse. And maybe she's new, so you go through the same song and dance with the next nurse. And maybe the computers are down, and you go through the same song and dance so that that person can type it into the computer and get it to stick. Don't know why, because you're going to have to fill all that out and answer it again the next time you come in. But then the doctor finally comes in about an hour and a half after you got there. And they say, well, Brother Thorne, what's wrong? He says, I don't, I don't know that anything's wrong. I don't know that I'm sick. Why do you ask? Well, we expect a physician to do if we don't actually tell them that we're sick. If we don't actually reveal what it is that we're afflicted with, what we're suffering through, if we continue to pile upon it, shame, uh, unashamedness of our fleshly lusts and, and pride, oh, I couldn't possibly be sick. I'm great. I'm in peak physical condition. There's nothing wrong with me. Then nothing shall be fixed. You have not because you ask not. No one would go through all of that with a physician without unveiling. Uh, and Rebecca's gone to a lot of my doctor's appointments, if not all of them in my life, because we've known each other for so long. She knows that usually by the time we get to the point where the doctor's in there, I'll reveal every hurt I've ever had in my entire life. If it just means I can make the most of this time. I have hip soreness, shoulder soreness, lost some weight. I think I did it right, but I might have been sick. You better check it out until they talk about needles. And then I say, I'm good. I'm great. Don't want anything to do with that. Well, beloved, we got to be dissected. We have to be uh, humiliated and poverty stricken. We have to realize we have nothing. In the eye of the Lord, we have nothing to offer, nothing that will come out of our wallets or our pocketbooks that will have earned us an inheritance, nothing that will persuade him. Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. I have a bunny from that message this morning. You can almost picture that little girl. I have a bunny with big eyes, so excited and thoroughly passionate to share the good news of the bunny that she has. 
Oh, that we would remember what it was like to be a child. I think of how Rebecca said, Livy responded when, when you and Jerry were here with the dog yesterday. He brought the dog. And she's so excited. Where is that joy for the Christian? He brought our peace. He brought our healing. He made me whole. Come see this man who knew all things. And he restored me. He gave me hope, says the woman who was at the well at the heat of the day. Come see this man. I was dead four days. I stunketh. I was awfully dead. I was beyond dead. My body, you couldn't have even convinced my body that it wasn't dead. And yet he said, come forth and I live it. Come see this man who without even coming to the centurion's child made him whole. Come see this man who healed the blind man who the synagogues an hour later threw out. Who for the sake of keeping their membership at the synagogue, his parents forsook him. Come see this man, says the one-tenth of the, of, the, of the lepers who were walking that day, who made me whole. Not only did he heal me, but he restored me spiritually. I am whole. I'm not just a new physical man. I'm a new eternal spiritual man. Amen. Come see this one who one day soon shall come back. At the sound of the trump shall call me into the air. And I love you, but I won't miss you. Because I'm going with him. Come see this one who's set to return any day now. We talked recently about, you know, what if he were to come back on the 25th? One of those days when people are least likely to look for him. And even that day when I said it, I was also thinking about today. For the next six, seven hours. Now a lot of people's going to be looking for the Lord Jesus. He will come at a time when we think not. As a thief in the night. And with this concluding event, we see that the temperament must remain throughout our service to the King. Humility and poverty. Think of how he, way back in Matthew 5, when he was talking about the how-to-be attitudes, the happy-tudes, however you want to refer to it, uh, depending on how you want to translate those words. And if you know Matthew 5, you know what I'm talking about. The Sermon on the Mount. What is he talking about his beloved people doing in Matthew 5? They ask for this, give them two. Turn, they hit this side, give them that. Everything there. Take what you've been given and give it. And... He gives a lot of examples of physical things that we know in this life. Coats and, and things of that nature. But what is the greatest thing that Christ has given you? If you're here and born again, take it and give it. Because what He has given us is an everlasting well. We're not going to use it up ever. So if He's given, if love is the answer you just gave in your mind, because nobody shouted it out loud, if love is the greatest gift God's ever given you, and you go and give it tenfold today, you will find His grace is sufficient, and it'll be there tomorrow. Not only so, but you'll be stronger and stronger and stronger in grace day after day for exercising the muscle that you've been given. 
God gave me these arms. If I don't use them, you know what will happen to them? They'll get really, really, really weak. I have to use them. I have to exercise them. God gave me compassion. And if I don't exercise compassion, I will be hard. I will be callous. I will be cruel. These writers have a lot of good things to say. Be careful. There's but one Bible. Amen. Let's do all for the glory of God because we love Him. Not because there'll be some great reward. Let's do all for the glory of God because it's commanded of us to serve our King. And let us do so carefully. Not measuring ourselves against our brethren. Remember, not too long before this event was also the publican and the Pharisee uh, example of prayer. Where the publican says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Doesn't even lift up his head. He doesn't compare himself to the publican. But in the publican's boasting prayer, that's all he did. I'm better than this one. I'm going to make it. This is not a marathon. I, I know there's times where we might feel led to say, oh, it's not a race, it's a marathon. But it's not a marathon. You're not trying to beat one another. If you're born again, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've technically won the race. You're going to get to finish. You're going to get to rejoice. When Isaac and I used to run 5Ks, and we did a 10K once, uh, part of the joy was the cookies and the orange juice at the end. Uh, some of us enjoyed the cookies a little bit more than others until a mascot chased them off. But uh, that, that's, that did happen. And it wasn't me. You can tell that story later. We're already there with the cookies and the orange juice. Mm -hmm. Beloved, train your bodies. Call in submission. If you don't teach in your home, start today. No better time to teach in the home than when everybody wants to watch the Super Bowl. Turn off. Amen. Turn off. And if you're going to watch the Super Bowl, if you're going to sit down with a lot of folks, before it even gets started, turn it off and pray. Uh, amen. He may not have you turn it back on, but turn it off and pray first. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer and we'll close. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once more for the opportunity to preach and teach your word. And we know that it is not uh, something that can be claimed or, or, or earned, Father, but it is an opportunity, a burden that you've placed upon your people to teach and to feed and to excitedly pursue after you and your word. Be with us in this chase, Father, in this hunt to understand you better. Be with us in this study, Father, of this, these chronological events, Father, that we might better understand maybe events that we have known about most of our lives, but we might better understand the sequence of all of them to see the further blessings that you had for your people on that day and to see the further devastation of their rejection of you, of their pride, of their arrogance, and help us, Father, to see ourselves in those moments too. Help us, Father, to repent expeditiously for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Help us, Father, to be found faithful, to be found watching and working. We ask, Father, that you go with us through this week as we, we hope and pray that certain projects will be wrapped up and that we'll be able to regain some peace in our homes, Father. We, we ask that this lesson not be lost on us, Father, that we not forget what we have learned in the six or seven weeks of, of contractors and everything else, Father, that, uh, that silence and patience is a gift and that all of these things compounded have been exercised to teach us something more. Help us, Father, to desire the truth of those blessings, to desire uh, further feeding of your word, and to desire further understanding of all that it is that you do through and for your people. 
Be with this community, Father. Reveal unto us what work is, is there for us, Father, that we not forsake it, that we not ignore it. Help us, Father, to not take other men's words uh, as the gospel. Help us to be studious and trusting in your word and to studying these things out, such as the situation with uh, the examples given today. Help us to know these men for men, to know ourselves to be men too, to understand that every man in his own eyes is righteous. Every man in his own eyes is also lofty and pompous. And help us, Father, help us to escape such things by being poverty-stricken and humble. Help us, Father, bring us to our grassroots. Help us to find the very truth of our salvation. And help us, Father, to build only on that foundation that which you have commanded. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. We ask you protect the O'Neills. You protect uh, David, Paul, and Bone as they return, Father. You bring them back here, too, at the next appointed time. Be with the mission. Be with Caldwell. Lord, we just ask again all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.